It wasn't suicide. Suicide. Kosuka was murdered. Kosuka was murdered. He's one person. One person. Yet he's not. Yet he's not. He can appear in front of anyone. Who's been driven into a corner? With nowhere to go. Nowhere to go. Anytime or anywhere. Howdy y'all, and welcome back to a special spooky episode of the Treehouse Anime Club. My name is Dave, and this is my podcast where I talk about anime production and the fine folks who make it all possible. And this week, we are talking about Paranoia Agent, a 13-episode mystery-slash-horror series from 2004, created and directed by the late, great Satoshi Kon, and animated by Studio Madhouse. But before we go roller skating, I gotta do the thing where I promote the show— The Treehouse Anime Club is on the air, courtesy of Spotify for Podcasters. Spotify is our main platform. You can also find us on most major providers, Apple Play, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. We post new episodes twice a month, usually on the first and third Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Central. We have an Instagram page, the Treehouse Anime Pod. You can stay up to date with the show, plus a couple of extra goodies. We also have a Discord server. You can follow the link in the Treehouse Anime Club Instagram bio. So that's the Treehouse Anime Pod. Follow along in the bio. That is a free invite to our Discord server. No strings attached. I would also appreciate it if you left a review from whichever platform that you're listening from, if it supports reviews. And really, any and all engagement really helps the show. It really does. But most importantly... I'm glad you decided to make my show about Japanese cartoons part of your day. So real quick, what I've been up to since the last episode, as of a few days ago, I believe it was October 14th, we just crossed 500 downloads, and that is incredible. I just want to thank everybody real quick from starting literally like grassroots, like no baked-in audience just at all. Not only have you guys showed up and listened to the show, you keep coming back. You know, I've somehow trapped you in this cycle of thinking my opinions are about anime are good and apparently you keep coming back for more and you're telling your friends about the show like seriously it has been an incredible journey I knew I was going to hit 500 downloads obviously but this was a number I really wasn't expecting to hit until maybe at the end of the year but it was really about September that early September that I started to realize holy crap, I could hit 500 in like another month. And I just want to say again, thank you guys for showing up and to continue to show up. And of course, this is only only the beginning. We are growing. The podcast is growing. The word is getting out there. And I also have a couple of small projects that I've been doing off to the side. Well, they're not small projects, but I've been reaching out to some folks. And next year, I'm really trying to learn more about like the social media engagement and how to get a consistent upload schedule, uh, at least on like social media, Instagram, threads. Social media right now is just in such a weird spot. I don't want to commit to any particular platform. And I've also been free of Twitter since like 2019. I really don't want to go back. So if there's a really viable Twitter platform, I'm trying to wait. I'm kind of waiting for the dust to settle on that one. 
Also, by the time you're listening to this, I am on a brief vacation. I do take a short trip every fall just before the holiday craziness kicks in, you know, before the work craziness kicks in. It's just a nice time to get away and relax for the weekend, just just a couple of days. And of course, as opposed to last vacation, there is no jumping out of trucks for me this time, though. I'm looking at least twice before I leap. Okay, no, I'm not even leaping. I am slowly and carefully throwing myself out. You know, maybe I haven't learned anything at all. I probably need to bring the walking cane just in case. Uh, no, I do not plan to bust up my ankle this time. And I, I believe I've learned my lesson. Hopefully. In more anime-related news, the fall anime season is, of course, here. In fact, we are just over three weeks in, I think. It was like going into week number four. There's really no longer a hard like beginning date like the old broadcast days. Streaming has made everyone's schedules weird. Like Some shows even dropped multiple episodes on their premiere, like looking at you, Freeran. Other shows aren't starting until the last week of October or even middle of November. And even last week, I just put out my fall preview episode, and I put 10 shows on my watch list. That is insane. And I believe that for me, that is four shows that are returning on that list. And just even that amount is just crazy for me on my watch list. That's insane. But even more insane is just how many good shows I'm still missing out on at this very moment. There is more anime that comes out every season. And it has gotten impossible to even find just like the the fall season is just so completely stacked that my backlog is just practically doubled. And even just when I was talking about the fall preview episode, I just dropped that last week and I joked about doing a part two to the fall preview, but at this point I may actually do it. Y'all might actually be seeing a part two and I, but I'm cutting myself off until after Pluto drops on Netflix. That should be after October the 26th at some point, but by that point I may as well wait for Attack on Titan in November. Like you guys see my dilemma here. Things just keep hitting, but I think after the big wave of Netflix shows, that should be probably about the start, the stopping point. I also want to do the, I don't, I also want to cover Scott Pilgrim takes off. And so that's more getting into November as well. And by that time we'll be knocking on the door of the winter season. So I have no idea. We may, we may just be getting a part two and I'm probably just going to repeat some of the things I said in part one, but that's just how utterly stacked the fall season is. So rather than talk about everything that I'm watching, just know that I'm watching a lot of shows and when it comes time for me to talk about them, we'll get around to it. Uh, a brief podcast update. We have about three episodes. Well, we have, yeah, we have about three episodes left this year. After this episode, we have episode 13, Chobits, then 14, Grand Lagan in November. And our final episode, episode 15, will be on Cowboy Bebop in December. Then I'm taking the rest of the year off for the holidays and prep for next year. I have given this more thought as well since the fall preview episode last week. There's a little thing that I... I I may have left it in, but in case I didn't, or in case you haven't listened to that episode, since this year, it marks the finale to the Attack on Titan anime season, whatever this is now, just the whole Attack on Titan saga. That show began airing in 2013, and at the end of, well, in the middle of November will be the final, 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 whatever, how many final parts there is, but it's going to be the end. And I've thought it would be cool for all of us to get together and talk about this past decade of experiencing Attack on Titan, even if all of almost half of that decade was literally waiting for the second season. I don't think it dropped to like 2017. And since then, it's been pretty consistent. I think that would be a cool episode. Maybe do that 
in maybe maybe sometime after the Cowboy Bebop episode. Like Bebop's going to be a big episode as it is. So the Attack on Titan episode might even have to wait until sometime in the middle of like January 2024. Bebop and the AMA, I'm not going to stress too much about putting out more episodes. I have a clear line of sight in front of me and it just depends on how much time I want to set aside to work on the podcast during the holidays. However, on the horizon, you can expect at least one bonus episode at the end of the year. That's going to be my wrap-up, state of the podcast, AMA, New Year's goals, just a big old rambling hodgepodge of my thoughts on this year, as well as my goals going into 2024. And that's pretty much it for now. I'm closing the curtain, no more peeking. I'm done talking about all of my plots and plans uh, so far. So we're going to move this right along, and I'm going to reach over here now and pull the chain and turn on the listener spotlight. And for this time, since we are approaching Halloween, I I did ask not only thoughts about Paranoia Agent or Satoshi Kon, I thought, like, what were some of the Halloween traditions or just spooky traditions that you enjoy? So we got two comments in. The first one is relating to just Satoshi Kon in general, but a little bit of Paranoia Agent. Fallen Snow Kiku had a lot to say, so I did have to kind of uh, condense it down just a little bit. But this is what Fallen Snow Kiku has to say about Satoshi Kon and Paranoia Agent. All I've seen of Satoshi Kon's work is Paranoia Agent and Perfect Blue, though I plan on seeing Tokyo Godfathers when they re-release it in theaters closer to Christmas. As far as I'm aware, this was his only full-length series. That is correct. I never knew of the man until long after his passing, but I feel as if the world lost a magnificent talent when he died. Everything I've seen him, everything I've seen by him made an immense impression on me, and I'd love to work through his entire output someday. On that point, Kiku, it is, I think it's very well worth to see his catalog. It is a short, but again, just incredibly impactful catalog. Satoshi Kon, uh, well before his time, went out well before his time. So continuing with Kiku's quotes, I've seen Paranoia Agent described as a psychological thriller, which it absolutely is, but I feel like that's selling it very short. Sure, that's an umbrella term, but I think it delves into far more genres than that and handles them all quite well. I really liked the quasi-anthologies like this and Mushishi. And while many forms of media benefit from a rewatch, I can't think of a single one that openly invites the viewer to experience it all again like this one does. Alright, so Kiku, of course, gets the gold star this episode for shouting out Mushishi. That's one of my all-time big three animes of all time. We love and respect Mushishi in this treehouse. And I get into this in a few minutes in the, in the main episode, but I think... The next movie you should watch from Satoshi Kon, if you're going to experience the rest of his catalog, uh, so to, uh, whew, Tokyo Godfathers is a really good choice, but I also recommend checking out Millennium Actress uh, next if you can get a hold of it. That's actually my favorite movie by Satoshi Kon, and we really lost one hell of a talent when he passed, and I refused the, this year when I decided to make this podcast. I refused to end my first year of podcasting without covering at least one of his projects. And even then, it kills me that I'm only covering one, but leaving some more ahead in the future is a pretty good motivator to keep going, I would think. Our next commenter was Huli, and they were more just talking about Halloween traditions or Halloween memories. So this is what Huli has to say. My favorite Halloween costumes as a kid were Buzz Lightyear, the Black Power Ranger, and Scream. Buzz Lightyear is my favorite, though, because I have a comparison picture of me as a kid as Buzz, and my daughter, my daughter being Buzz around the same age. Twinsies. So obviously dressed up their daughter as a Buzz Lightyear. That is so cute. And speaking of that character, my mom actually made me a Buzz Lightyear costume when I was a kid. And my little sister, uh, I believe she was dressed as Jessie. 
That's around when Toy Story 2 came out. So both of these costumes were homemade, and my sister and I played so hard that the costumes barely held together by the end of the night. There was not really any trick-or-treating where we were. We were just kind of pretty rural, but we did live next to our, our church held this big event in the parking lot with the usual carnival stuff for all the kids in the area. So it's more like a gathering place than this neighborhood. So of course you had the jumping palace, some bobbing for apples. I remember fishing for candy, uh, you know, the usual carnival game stuff, then just general kids, rough housing. I have a lot of fun memories for Halloween. And so as far as Halloween and trick-or-treating and the whole spooky nature and everything, I think that's a good time as any to get ready to jump into our main topic. I will give a, I need to do a quick aside though, because much like with the, well, not just much like with any particular episode, but as this is, as Paranoia Agent is a horror series, I'm of course going to give a big old general content warning. There will be scary and upsetting imagery in this show, practical litany of just trigger warnings, but the biggest ones in Paranoia Agent are, I believe, like assault self-harm and even like suicide, some people just being toxic in general. A lot of bad stuff happens in Paranoia Agent. And I will repeat this multiple times in the show as well as the review roundup. Paranoia Agent may not exactly scare you, but it will absolutely disturb you at some point. This show is designed to get under your skin. And so if any of the things that I mentioned above are things that might, or the, 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 any of the trigger warnings that I issued, you know, if you, if you think that might be a bit too much, feel free to skip Paranoia Agent, but I do hope that you stick around and at least listen to why I think Satoshi Kon is such a great creator. I also go through some of what I would call like the recommended watch order of his catalog. So even if you don't like Paranoia Agent, there's certainly something in his catalog that I believe that you could certainly check out. And I think about that, I think that just about covers the basis. So let's dive into this beautiful madness that is Paranoia Agent. Everything begins with a dog. Tsukiko Sagi is a shy cartoonist living in Tokyo and the creator of the extremely popular mascot character Maromi, a lovable, squishy pink doll with black spots, a very large comical head, and big, soulful black eyes. This character is like the equivalent of like the Hello Kitty phenomenon from a couple of years ago, and like merchandise is just absolutely flying off the shelves. Tsukiko Sagi now finds herself under extreme pressure at work to replicate Maromi's success with another smash hit character design for her company, but due to the strict time constraints given to her by her bosses, as well as the jealousy of her co-workers, plus just this overall pressure of success, Tsukiko seems to be driven into a corner. She just cannot seem to design any character no matter what, and it's beginning to take a serious toll. And as she walks home one night, she is suddenly attacked from behind by an elementary school boy wearing inline skates. The last thing she sees is a golden baseball bat. However, due to the location of the attack, plus there being practically zero witnesses, the two detectives assigned to her case, Keiichi Ikari and Mitsuhiro Maniwa, they begin to suspect that Tsukiko might be lying about the attack. That is, until they receive word of a second victim. Word quickly spreads about a juvenile serial assailant named Little Slugger, or Shonen Bat, or Bat Boy in the Japanese original. None of the victims can recall the boy's face, and the only three distinct details are left in their memories. Golden inline skates, a baseball cap, 
and a bent golden baseball bat. Ikari and Maniwa then set out to track down the perpetrator and put an end to his crime. So this is at least the premise for the plot of Paranoia Agent. The plot of this show is really more like a set of loosely connected stories, like little character vignettes that relay between a large cast of characters, a large cast of people, and their various encounters with the what I'm going to call the little slugger phenomenon, usually his victims, and typically also uh, the mounting frustrations of the detectives assigned to catch him. Paranoia Agent is a rather frustrating series to experience as an audience member. However, this is very much by design, so there are no quick or easy answers with this sort of work, or particularly just with Satoshi Kon in general. And if you are unfamiliar with the legendary catalog or of Satoshi Kon, or if this is your first time watching one of his uh, works, first off, welcome aboard. So the main thing I want to say is just expect to be constantly put off your guard or taken to uh, some rather uncomfortable territory, you know, including the things I mentioned earlier. Paranoia Agent, and by proxy, a fair amount of Satoshi Kon's catalog likes to play upon and twist your uh, expectations as an audience. There's a lot of dramatic irony at play. And with Paranoia Agent in particular, this is Satoshi Kon. I don't typically think of him as a horror director, but of course, this being Halloween and all, this is him basically applying all of these various techniques that he's mastered over the years. This is him applying those techniques to horror. Paranoia Agent will disturb you at some point you will be confronted with some very uncomfortable situations and some very uncomfortable characters. But I think to help better explain my point and why Paranoia Agent and just Satoshi Kon in general is worth your time, I'm going to go straight into the staff catalog, staff rundown, and uh, talk about the man himself. And he is primarily known as a movie director. So Paranoia Agent is the only TV series he has ever directed. He had a tragically short but extremely impactful uh, directing career in anime, His films are Perfect Blue from 1997, Millennium Actress in 2001, Tokyo Godfathers in 2003, and then Paranoia Agent Now, Paprika in 2006, and then he died of pancreatic cancer on August 24th, 2010. I believe he was 46 years old. So a little bit about him. Uh, Satoshi Kon started his career as a manga artist while still in college, actually. He wrote a short piece called Tardico in 1984, and that ran in Kodansha's Young Magazine. At the same time, and in the same magazine, so this was Kodansha's Young Magazine, in 1984, we had Katsuhiro Otomo's legendary comic Akira was in the middle of serialization. And as Satoshi Kon was also doing some editing work for the magazine, he actually ended up assisting uh, Katsuhiro Otomo on Akira. Satoshi Kon's anime debut project was as an animator and backgrounds for the 1991 film Rojin Z, which was written by Otomo. And then in 1992, Satoshi Kon had his own screenwriting debut with Magnetic Rose, which is part of the anthology series Memories, which released in 1995. And this was, of course, directed by Katsuhiro Otomo. That's a three-part series. So the Magnetic Rose story, a short film, I should say, is part one of Memories. And Magnetic Rose is important because it's the first instance we see on screen Satoshi Kon's thematic direction of mixing reality with fantasy and having his characters struggle to separate the two. This is basically the defining themes of his catalog. And during this time, he also worked with Mamoru Oshii. So this is the the director of 1995's Ghost in the Shell. We talked about him a couple times on this podcast. Kon was a layout artist for Pat Labor the Movie 2. He and Olshi also co-authored a manga called Seraphim. 
Oshi was the writer and Satoshi Kon was the artist. However, the manga remains unfinished due to the creative differences. So they basically just stopped working on it together and just left that manga in the lurch. And Satoshi Kon stopped drawing manga in general after this project fell through, but that's actually not entirely true. There is one more because I know of one manga that he worked on in particular, and this is from October 1995 to about June 1996, a very short run comic. But he authored a short, again, unfinished manga named Opus, which ran in the magazine Comic Guys until the magazine's closure in June of 1996. This was collected in two volumes by the publishing company Tokuma Shoten in December of 2010, and also included a new ending found after shortly after Satoshi Kon's death. And I wanted to highlight Opus in particular because it is one of another part of his catalog of works where Satoshi Kon, again, mixing reality with fantasy, but he also gets rather meta with his commentary. So the manga Opus is about a manga artist who is about to conclude his long-running series, and he is about to write the scene that will kill off his main character. And I don't know if it's how it starts or just if maybe the manga artist is stressed or he's just like at the finish line and about to collapse. But either way, he starts having, I guess, a hallucination is more like a delusion. Again, the fantasy mixing with reality of all of a sudden the manga artist is drawn into his own manga because the protagonist of his manga says, hey, what are you doing? I don't want to die. Are you about to kill me? You jerk. See, see if you come in here, you know, take on someone your own size. Come in here and see how you feel about it. And so all of a sudden the manga artist has to survive in the post-apocalyptic world that he has created. Meanwhile, his own protagonist is acting as the villain of the story. So it's a really clever inversion, and I hate that it's unfinished, but it was just a, again, not, not really much you can do when you have a, when, when you have your magazine closed down. And there is a, another, again, another, another unfinished work by Satoshi Kon. This one was actually in around 2010, because Kon was working on uh, another film called The Dream Machine. And he died right in the middle of production. And so the movie was indefinitely put on hold. But the stated reason was not so much his death, but issues with financing the film. So the producer, uh, Masao Maruyama, he said as recently as Otakon 2013 that he would still like to see Dream Machine Project completed someday. And as far as Satoshi Kon's catalog, I do have a recommended starting point. Because Satoshi Kon, again, in my mind, he's not a horror director. It just happens that his style, his creative style, works very well in horror, as I will soon uh, demonstrate in Paranoia Agent. So my recommended starting point with Satoshi Kon, if you don't want Paranoia Agent to be your first experience, I would say the 2001 film Millennium Actress. This is all the weirdness of Satoshi Kon's storytelling and flipping the script and the blending of reality. It's all in one sitting without trying to actively scare you, but you're still in for a very wild and unexpected ride as you, the characters are drawn into this fantasy. Of course, Perfect Blue would be my next one after Millennium Actress. This is, of course, his directorial debut and his first film. I also advise uh, strongly call some caution on this one because uh, there's some um, very strong content. This earns its R rating with ease and with room to spare. The horror of this movie to me is also aged like fine wine. Like it was really scary on its debut, but it's only gotten scarier in the internet age. She basically, uh, our main character basically has an internet stalker. And this is in the late 90s. So the internet as, a, as itself was not so widely available. In the movie, it's like this new thing. But of course, now it's practically ubiquitous. And so the things that are that happen in that movie are just scarier and scarier. And if you make it through Perfect Blue, or just want to skip that one entirely, 
Instead, treat yourself with the film Tokyo Godfathers. This is, in my mind, this is Cone's most approachable and straightforward film. It's also set during Christmas. You can kind of call it a Christmas movie. Some people call it a Christmas movie. I don't call it a Christmas movie, but nonetheless, it takes place during Christmas. This is Cone turning his attention to comedy with a found family aspect between our three uh, main characters who are homeless. Uh, a lot of social issues in Tokyo and wider Japan, namely, again, namely the home- homeless, as well as immigration through the lens of our very unconventional characters. So Toshi Kon really likes picking kind of the outsiders, like, again, the losers of society. If you, That's a line that I stole straight from episode four of the podcast. If you want to hear more about another human humanist director, check out episode four, NUO and Masaki Yuasa. And so finally, of course, we have Paprika. This is Cohen's final film, and it explores the nature of dreams versus reality. Also, again, if you ever get a chance to check out Magnetic Rose, or really just watch all of Memories from Katsuhiro Otomo, I find them very interesting altogether. But Magnetic Rose is easily the highlight of that compilation to me. So if you want something like the shortest and most concentrated, earliest writing style of Satoshi Kon, Magnetic Rose is also really good. Plus, I'm a science fiction nerd, so I love all of the sci-fi craziness going on. In fact, if you are a fan of the video game Returnal, you will no doubt get a kick out of Magnetic Rose. That I can guarantee. So let's get back to Paranoia Agent and the rest of the staff catalog, because I could talk about Satoshi Kon easily for another hour. But of course, he's not the only person who worked on this film, who worked on on this TV show, excuse me. So the basic lead up and the reason why Paranoia Agent was kind of created in the first place is because in his previous films leading up to this, his three previous movies, Satoshi Kon had, of course, all of these other smaller ideas that he wanted to explore in animation. But these were more, again, these were smaller scale ideas. They didn't really fit into the scope of his usual movie projects. However, he still wanted to put these ideas to film. So he recycled a lot of them into this experimental show paranoia agent and so as the original creator he was of course heavily involved in storyboarding each episode he was also heavily involved in the opening and ending credit animation so all of that visuals in the in the opening credit sequence that was all storyboarded by satoshi Kon. but also helping to organize this madness we have the series composition by seishi minakami so his career started in 1997 as an episode screenwriter and this is a series that immediately stood out to me was actually 2000's Boogie Bop Phantom, which is another series with this enigmatic figure uh, basically spiriting people away and a main character who pursues them. So kind of a mystery series with uh, with kind of like a supernatural element to it. But more recent credits are actually shows from this year. So we have Sugar Apple Fairy Tale and Sacrificial Princess and King of Beasts. And if you're in the mood for also just absolutely something wild, check out 2018's Vatican Miracle Examiner. And as far as the main thing that Minakami's job was, is of course, pacing out this series. And I want to talk about sort of the storytelling techniques of Paranoia Agent, because the show starts off conventionally enough, at least for the first three episodes, you know, largely character-driven stories with some connecting threads as the case of Little Slugger is introduced and gets properly underway. We have Sikiko Sagi and then the next two victims, but very quickly, this conventional setup gets folded like a paper airplane and just thrown right out the window. Because if you aren't familiar with Satoshi Kon, or even if you are, and I've talked about this just a few minutes ago, is a to- is a common technique that he uses across all of his projects is 
to set up an expected series of events, get you nice and comfortable, and then just pull the rug right out from under you. Just something completely unexpected. He also likes to give you enough red herrings to open a daggum fish market. My first encounter with Satoshi Kon was actually his film Millennium Actress. And not only are does he keep his characters off balance, they are actively drawn into the fantasy, or I should say like the illusion, uh, delusion, the fantasy, and they are active participants in the fantasy. But in that movie, Satoshi Kon was using the fantasy as a shorthand for memory so the or like the recollection for of an event and it was also used for a fair amount of character comedy because the basic setup of millennium actress was you have this legendary actress with a long career but she suddenly vanishes from the spotlight well now we have a film crew who has tracked her down and she's agreed to an interview but one of the guys is a big fan of hers so as she is telling the memories basically the story of her life and her career, we, the audience and the cameraman and the director filming this, we are actively drawn into like her past movies, like her past glories. And the director's all for it. And the cameraman's just looking around utterly bewildered. Like the cameraman is the, is the audience insert, just like actively shouting, what is going on? The director's like, ah, have fun with it. You know, make sure you keep it rolling. So that's more of his style But in Paranoia Agent, it's more accurate to say that these fantasies are delusions, and therefore it's a lot more uh, sinister connotation with this. There's still a fair amount of comedy in this show, but it's, again, it's more like darker, that kind of ironic comedy, a lot of nods and winks to the audience. Uh, Episode 9 in particular is comprised of several like very tiny vignettes. The setup is you basically have a group of gossiping housewives, and you're kind of, the show kind of lets you decide for yourself how reliable a narrator these women all are. And there's another element, that's another element to Colin's storytelling that I love. Because the more unbalanced a character is, like in their mental state, or for those characters who are experiencing a delusion, we, the audience, are brought in with that character. So the more unbalanced a character becomes, the more unsettling the viewing experience can be. This is a trick that he uses all throughout his things from from the start of Magnetic Rose all the way through Paprika. If you want the shorthand for what is really cool about his style, the more unbalanced the character, the crazier the setting. Character designs for Paranoia Agent are credited to Masashi Ando. And in the works leading up to Paranoia Agent, Satoshi Kon is actually credited as the character designer next to another person. Like for Tokyo Godfathers, it was Kenichi Konishi. Uh, Takeshi Honda for Millennium Actress, and Hideki Hamasu for Perfect Blue. But as it were, I can certainly say that I, from, from visually, I can tell that obviously Satoshi Kon was, as the head director, he was obviously had the final say on the character designs, but for this project in particular, he is not credited. So Masashi Ando is largely credited as the chief character designer, but his work on Paranoia Agent looks right at home with Kon's character style. But of course, I'm talking about Masashi Ando right now, and we've this is kind of a continuation of last episode. A little bit briefly, we may we mentioned him once in the Moribito episode, and Ando-san has had one hell of a career. He's been a key animator, of course, across several titles. He's worked with Studio Ghibli from about 1991 to 2001, so from up from up on Poppy Hill, Porco Rosso in 1992. He was also an animation director at only 25 years old, so he was the animation director one of the animation directors on Princess Mononoke. And then he revised this role for Spirited Away. However, shortly after Spirited Away, he had this falling out with Miyazaki over directing methods. 
and thus left Studio Ghibli. And he basically went, he, he did a little bit afterwards, like 2001, 2002, but Masashi Ando has actually been involved with uh, all of Satoshi Kon's projects since 2003. Tokyo Godfathers is an animation director. He was also the character designer for Kon's final film, Paprika, in 2006. And then Masashi Ando briefly returned to Studio Ghibli in 2013 as a member of the animation staff for The Tale of Princess Kaguya. And in 2014, he was an animation director for When Marnie Was There, as well as a co-writer for the script. Of course, neither film had any involvement from Miyazaki, by the way. Moving forward, he was the character designer and an animation director for Your Name in 2016. And so that's that's the, what, Princess Mononoke, Spirited Away, Your Name. He's worked on three of the biggest films in Japanese box office history in regards to like prestige and revenue as an animation director. This guy, like, wow. It's surprising, but his directorial debut didn't actually come until 2022, just last year. And Masashi Ando is the director for the animation anime adaptation of Nahako Oehashi's The Deer King. And he's also the character designer on that one. And most recently, Masashi Ando came back for the animation staff for Hayao Miyazaki's How Do You Live? Or, or over here, it's The Boy and the Heron. And so one thing that should stand out immediately about Ando's work on Paranoia Agent, aside from just how good it is, and really the re- rest of his catalog, is how realistically drawn his characters are, even for the more fantastical settings of his works. And there's just there's just enough going on with certain characters that you can clearly see them standing out from the crowd of other regular people, but they still don't look out of place for the setting. And another thing that I wanted to point out about the character designs, they don't really draw conventionally pretty characters at least like in the in the anime style of just very very cartoonish like these are drawn like pretty realistic so everyone has like some kind of flaw or very minor imperfection just like these are normal people and even goes out of his way to make some of his characters look uh, conventionally like ugly what we would think of as ugly in terms of again we have like the really pretty stylized anime characters over here and then you just have a regular guy every time in Satoshi Kon's work. Uh, for example, we have this sketchy magazine journalist in the first episode. This guy's a real sleazebag. But this dude has kind of like a frog-like face. His vocal performance matches it as well. There's a parody episode where the frog-faced journalist is even directly drawn as a frog. So you have a little bit of stylization going on, but it still falls within the realism of the work. So these features are clear and noticeable, but they don't distract from the rest of the people on screen. In fact, when Cohn draw, draws, quote, pretty characters, there's usually something else going on. Like the scene is distorted or the image represents some kind of ideal. Like the character is seeing themselves in an ideal light that they're, of course, in real life, they're falling short of. And in every way, the characters of Satoshi Kon like stand in defiance to the more conventional design philosophies of his peers. And what I think Masashi Ando does a really good job is translating that across the biggest cast of characters really in any work that Kon has directed. And this is especially true for Paranoia Agent, where the actions and manner of speech for the characters, everything is purposely off rhythm. Random pausings, their bodies and faces like sometimes like shrink or swell depending on their mood, like someone shrinking into her own into their own thoughts or like swelling with anger and like red faced. There are some small instances of cartoonish depictions of characters and uh, smatterings of like some frankly Looney Tunes cartoon physics. But again, like everything in Paranoia Agent, it's done in a sort of dark parody. Like there is an underlining menace to them. And anytime someone in the show like displays 
blatant superpowers, like again, the Looney Tunes physics, it's usually as a parody. So again, I'm going to give another example. For instance, there's an interrogation scene where the detectives have a suspect and they are interrogating their suspect. However, this interrogation suddenly turns into a parody of the video game Dragon Quest. It's not called Dragon Quest, but you can tell like it is very much Dragon Quest. Through this interrogation, this interview, is the suspect is literally dragging the, the detectives into his mania. So while the parody is very on the nose and humorous, it's almost like an episode of like SpongeBob SquarePants or Adventure Time, Fairly Odd Parents. I mean, like, take your pick. You like, you know, those episodes where we suddenly just go into a character's mental space and it's possibly the most trippy nightmare fuel setting the animators can imagine while having the veneer of like a wonderful paradise. I'm thinking of like a SpongeBob SquarePants episode in particular, where it's just nothing but candy and the jellyfish and bubbles and unicorns. Like just, it's just disgustingly sweet. That's kind of the level of parody that Paranoia Agent goes for. But at the same time, we're getting valuable information on the, again, the little slugger incident. Uh, we also have a credit. I wanted to give this credit a uh, brief shout out because there is an individual credit to the person who designed the Maromi doll for the show. So if you're going to track down any mer- merchandise for Paranoia Agent, this is likely the only real piece of merchandise that you're likely going to find or see most often. So the person who is credited with designing the Maromi doll is Hideki Hamasu, and they are an animator and an animation director. Hideki-san got his start in the 80s, and he worked at Toei Animation for a time before going freelance, so he's worked on a lot of things like Captain Harlock, Arcadia of My Youth. He was the character designer on Perfect Blue next to Satoshi Kon, so of course we've talked about him a little bit, and basically continued working with Kon on future projects like he was the animation director on Millennium Actress, and Hideki Hamasu is also an animator on Your Name, as well as The Boy and the Heron. So further backing up the animation is the art director, director, Ike Nobutaka. And he's been an art director on basically every project Satoshi Kon directed at Madhouse. Nobutaka-san has also won art prizes for his works on Millennium Actress and Tokyo Godfathers at the Tokyo International Anime Fair. Other projects, he's worked on Princess Principal, as well as the 2021 uh, movie Bell, that's a Mamoru Hosoda project. And he's also provided backgrounds for Makoto Shinkai's latest film, Suzume. When you talk about a perfect fit for working with Satoshi Kon, Ike Nobutaka is that perfect fit. He's worked in properties where uh, the things that I've mentioned right there, where characters are basically grounded in the real world, but there's also something strange and colorful going on just at random times. Of course, sort of like a parallel or alternate worlds. In fact, much of Nobutaka's work on Paranoia Agent uh, is directly translated from a previous film, Tokyo Godfathers, as both projects are basically set, Paranoia Agent and Tokyo Godfathers are both set in, quote, real-world Tokyo. So, of course, I recognize several set pieces from Godfathers that are almost one-to-one from that project. However, don't think that these projects are related, like, in a timeline sense, because that's actually not the case. They just happen to share the same city, therefore the same landmarks, a lot of the same settings because again Tokyo Godfathers was right before Paranoia Agent so it would make sense for some of that set pieces to to come over kind of like easter eggs and nods and a major motif that I want to talk about through Khan's work as well is light or rather the use of lighting light equals the shorthand for a person's mental state in Paranoia Agent particularly as the show takes place entirely in Tokyo 
So you have a lot of muted grays in the environment, you know, the urban jungle. So a lot of the show takes place indoors. And so the lighting can be enhanced or muted depending on the environment. And so it was a major, it was a major theme just throughout his works in general. But typically he puts his heroes in a more positive light and of course his villains in more negative light. It's, it's simple stuff, but just it's the way that Cohen uses it and how he uses deep shadows or just overwhelming, like sometimes the light is like holy or angelic in nature. Light is just a major motif, and even like the different colors of light, the yellows and then your brights and your darker tones, the neon and how it reflects across people and kind of enhances the strangeness of the environment. It's really something that you have to see more than me sitting here and trying to describe a visual concept in the written word. But just for going forward, like a major hack to just Satoshi Kon's under understanding what Kon's trying to say in his works in general, and especially in Paranoia Agent, is pay attention to the lighting. I also want to give, uh, for something to kind of keep the audiences unsettled, I want to give a brief mention as well to Kato Michio, who did the eye catch or uh, the mid-roll for each episode. Because the eye catches in Paranoia Agent are like this kaleidoscope of noise and unsettling patterns, sometimes geographic, we sometimes have organic shapes, always like this electric, weird, just buzz or static in nature. Sometimes there are butterflies everywhere. Also, it's very, very loud. So if you ever get settled into an episode, this is almost like a jump scare. It's so loud. And Kato Michio is also the CG director on Paprika, so all these eye catches are like in CG. He has a lot of credits for special effects works across various anime titles, as well as directing a few shows. So he's got some character design work as well. This dude is like a Swiss army knife in the anime industry. You should check out his catalog. And I want to talk about going into the eye catches, things that are rather eye-catching, or of course the backgrounds in Paranoia Agent. But instead of talking about one individual person, I want to talk instead about a studio. Because this has a couple of, this is a studio that I believe I'm going to be coming back to rather often. And they also have, have worked on a couple of American, several American cartoons, in fact. So the backgrounds for Paranoia Agent were, was, was this uh, studio called Dr. Movie. And again, they're not the only studio working on Paranoia Agent's background. But if you look at the credits, you will see not only a ton of background artists, but you will just see a lot of people, like it was animation staff and in-betweens and cleaning up. Just your general, I just like people who are like boots on the ground. So, doc, so the studio Dr. Movie had a lot of just outside work with Paranoia Agent, not just the backgrounds. But they were did, also did the backgrounds for every episode, even if they weren't the only studio working on it. So Dr. Movie is a South Korean animation studio founded in 1990. And of course, they are a subcontractor on several animated productions and companies, you know, primarily for Japanese animation but they've also worked on a fair number of American cartoons as well. They have a long working relationship with Studio Madhouse in particular since about 1991 when they entered into an agreement as basically exclusive partner. Madhouse Studios also become uh, since a partial owner of the studio as well as a steady investor. So when you talk about anything that Madhouse makes, Dr. Movie is usually attached to it. So let's get into some of the things that they've worked on. Uh, they've provided animation work and backgrounds for work such as Claymore, Death Note, Vampire Hunter D, Bloodlust for Madhouse. Although nowadays they, I've seen more of them being attached to Studio PA works. Like 2022's Ya Boy Kung Ming. Also Buddy Daddy's Akiba Made War. 
They've also contributed to films by Studio Ghibli, so they provided backgrounds for Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, respectively. And speaking of Death Note, this one actually goes out to you Simpsons fans. Dr. Studio... Dr. Studio. Dr. Movie is the studio that animated the Death Note parody segment for the 2022 Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode. So there you go. And this is far from the only American co-production. Dr. Movie has been involved with co-producing almost every high-profile DC Comics cartoon in the early 2000s. With uh, That's the one with Warner Brothers. So that's everything from Teen Titans, The Batman, and the Justice League series, and a couple of ones. Nickelodeon's also in the mix as well. Dr. Movie's worked on Avatar The Last Airbender. Not the entire series. I believe it's like across the first two seasons. It just says in air quotes, 19 episodes, what they worked on in total. A lot of animation work, and this is just a smattering of their catalog. So as we go through more Madhouse stuff, I'll probably dig a little deeper into the Dr. Movie catalog as we go through. It's a really interesting company. Backing up all of this incredible animation is the soundtrack by Susumu Hirasawa. And he is what is known as a electro-pop artist, I, I, I guess is the title. He's comprised soundtracks for every Satoshi Kon project except for Perfect Blue. That honor actually goes to Mashiro Ikumi. But Hirasawa-san has also composed mu- music for the 1991 three-part OAV Genocidal Organ, plus the anime adaptations of the dark fantasy manga Berserk. And that basically constitutes his entire anime composing career. Everything Satoshi Kon, Genocidal Organ, Berserk, His last anime project that I found was on Paprika in 2006. He's more of a singles and album artist, so he's produced several singles and studio albums in his solo career. He's got a very experimental style. It's basically all synthesizer. When I was playing a little bit of the music going into here, the the opening theme is called uh, Dream Island Obsessional Park. The man singing the lyrics is Susumu Hirasawa. Let's let's get into it, because the, there's no better example, really, of his style than with the opening and ending credits themes. These were fully composed, arranged, and sung by Hirosawa-san. So again, I already saw, I said the opening theme, the Dream Island Obsessional Park, and the closing theme is White Hill, colon, Maromi's theme. And it's it's really weird to try and describe this soundtrack. I've struggled in the past, I think, to talk about soundtracks but i mean you think about it it's been largely orchestral or a little bit of some have a little bit more rock and roll some mix in more synthesizer a little bit more classical a little bit more modern but the music of paranoia agent is it's it's harmonical but it's like also very unsettling it just feeds into everything in this show is designed to unsettle you and keep you on your toes and hirasawa-san's unconventional style his electropop style really fits this show perfectly. So I've played at least Dream Island Obsessional Park. I might play another one uh, transitioning into the review roundup here when I when I wrap this up. And these credits, man, these credits are also just feed straight into the tone of the show. If you've seen the animation or just anything, if you just go on YouTube and check out the opening credits theme to Paranoia Agent, you have the opening credits where everyone is laughing while standing in just extreme, extremely anachronistic settings. I don't know why I struggled with that. So examples like wearing a Hawaiian shirt at the top of a snowy mountain or a homeless woman with just trash bags standing on top of a table in this ornate restaurant. You even have one of the, de- the detectives, uh, Ikari-san, standing on a radio tower, arms spread wide and laughing 
as a nuclear mushroom cloud balloons in the background. Whereas the ending credits is more of like the subdued piece where the cast is more like spread out on the ground and the way that they are lying down, they're all around this giant Maromi doll in the shape of a question mark. It's just super weird. It's super just disturbing and it really feeds into the atmosphere of the show. If we're going to talk about the characters, let's go into the next segment, all about the actors. And I want to state something real quick. Like, as I stated earlier, Paranoia Agent is a series of individual like character vignettes, but we primarily follow the detectives as they attempt to unravel the Little Slugger case. I'm going to try and keep it to as close to the main cast as there is for this show. And then I'm going to give a couple of shout outs at the end. Kicking things off, we have Sukiko Sagi. So in Japanese, she is voiced by Mamiko Noto, who is Fuka Yamagishi from Persona 3 and all of the uh, subsequent anime adaptations. She's also Kotomi Ichinose from Clanad. I didn't know that, actually. Mavis Vermilion from Fairy Tale. And she is a prolific singer as well. She's done theme songs for Negima, Bigata HK, Queen's Blade, uh, Witchblade, to name a few. She also works a lot in radios and dramas, and you'll see a lot of radio credits in particular and audio dramas. In English, Tsukiko is voiced by Michelle Ruff. This is Rukia from Bleach, which if you've heard any of if you've heard any of how the Tsukiko talks, this blew I I saw Michelle Ruff and I went, no. This blew me away the first time I saw her names in the credits. Sounds nothing like Rukia, of course. Also, Tsukiko sounds nothing like Fujiko Mine from Lupin the Third. Nor does she sound like Sadayo Kawakami from Persona 5, the games and then the anime dubs. So Michelle Ruff is giving a very different performance from the things from the very confident characters that I know her for. Because Sakiko Sagi is extremely shy and closed off to the point that like some of her voice lines are practically whispers. You could just barely hear her. And even then it's like very halting and hesitant. Honestly, listening to Sakiko talk, air quotes talk, can be very frustrating. And then you see the characters around her also get ticked off. So it's not just the audience, like Tsukiko just has a habit of ticking everybody off. She is an interesting character to watch, however, as she goes to the show, because Tsukiko just seems completely detached from her surroundings. Like she's either too scared, overwhelmed. Like it seems at first like the success of the her Maromi doll surprises her the most out of everyone uh, around her. And now she's suddenly in the spotlight 24-7. You know, she's suddenly a, like the biggest celebrity in the country. And so all of this makes it appear that Tsukiko just shuts down in order to make it through each day. So I can kind of, in, in a way, I can I can certainly sympathize with her. Our next character is Keichi Ikari. This is our seasoned detective, the older of the detective pair. And bringing, bringing the heat is Shozo Izuka. He is a seasoned voice actor who actually recently passed away this year in February. He was, he was 89, but still acting as recently as 2020. And he's got a career that spans all the way back to 1965. So yeah, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on him because he's had some legendary roles, including the voice of Ryo Jose from Mobile Suit Gundam, like 1979, as well as a second compilation film. He's also the voice of Nappa from Dragon Ball Z. And a more recent credit is like, this is a 2015 credit. He's an old dragon named Fafnir from Little Witch Academia. That's a Studio Trigger project. And here we go. I, I've, of course, found he's done a lot of dub over roles. So he's uh, I, here's some, some that really uh, stuck out to me that I think you'll find interesting. So Izuka-san is the voiceover dub actor for Terry Jones in the Japanese dub of Monty Python's Flying Circus. He also voices Sala for Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. So he's the voiceover for John Rhys-Davies. 
And he is the voiceover dub actor for Sergeant Bosco from like the A-Team, the original A-Team. So this man dubbed over Mr. T. He also has a lot of animation and video game dubbing credits, of course. He's done Garth from the Japanese dub of Batman the Animated Series. He was the voice of the Horned King from Disney's The Black Cauldron. Dr. Neo Cortex from Crash Bandicoot. And then Dr. Jumba Jukiba from Lilo and Stitch as well as this character's appearance across the various Kingdom Hearts video games. I Even just this is like the tip of the iceberg of this man's career. He has been everywhere. And of course, in his more recent career, voicing all of the old men and the, the grumpy characters in every episode, in every show. In English, Ikari the Detective is voiced by Michael McConaughey. And he works a lot on ADR and scripts on a wide variety of anime projects. So I've just got a few lined up here. He's worked on Aldo Zero, uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure Part 1, Digimon Adventure, Chobits, and Samurai Pizza Cats. He's also the voice of Ray Regalia from Aldo Zero. So this is a, but he's credited as Joffrey Chalmers in this one. He's also uh, the voice of Count Cagliostro from the Streamline dub of Lupin the Third, The Castle of Cagliostro. And then we have King Kai from Dragon Ball Super and Berserker from Fate Stay Knife. Fate Stay Night. Both men absolutely nail it as this character. Ikari-san is gruff and in charge at first, but he's also a guy, like, he's very old school and he's very easily frustrated. So Ikari feels like a man out of time or like he's living in the wrong era. And so this detective has, like, a real world weariness about him that gets more pronounced as the series goes on. And this is a character who goes through a lot. And I really like the performance of the beginning of the show where he's finding the connection between the cases and then how he is at the end where he has to kind of rally together to, to make it to the end of the show. Also, a quick shout out to the women who play Inspector Ikari's terminally ill wife, Misai Ikari. So we have Melody M. Spevak in English. I think I said that right. I, I hope I didn't butcher that name. I'm sorry to Miss Melody. We also have Kazue Komiya in Japanese, a Misai Ikari voiced by these two women. We have Detective Ikari's partner, Mitsuhiro Maniwa. This is the younger of the two, and he doesn't seem so much like a rookie, but he's more like, seems like more open-minded than Ikari. So he typically has like a more confident performance. So in Japanese, Maniwa is voiced by Toshihiko Seki, who we just talked about in the Outlaw Star episode. So this is the, this is the voice of Fred Lau. He's also the voice of Legato Blue Summers from Trigon. We also have a character named Musashi Goda from Mob Psycho 100. So this is actually our first time kind of covering him as a main character. And of course, as we've said multiple times, uh, Toshihiko Seki is quite the singer. So he's done uh, theme song performances on a, on a few shows like Ramna One Half, Sayuki Reload Burial, I Know Kusabi. And in English, Maniwa is voiced by Liam O'Brien. So of course, he is a very well-known voice actor and a voice director. He was, I think I believe I covered him in Revolutionary Girl Utena. So this is the character Mamiya Cheetah. He's also the voice of Dr. Kenzo Tenma in Naoki Urasawa's Monster. That's an excellent, excellent voice performance by him. Also, Giren Zabi from Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin. I just watched that show and he gave a very villainous performance there. Of course, Liam O'Brien is the ADR and did the ADR and script on Naruto and Naruto Shippuden. So, of course, he's the voice of Gara from the desert. Also, of course, a ton of success in the past few years as an actor on the Dungeons and Dragons podcast show, Critical Role, which is, of course, this massive D&D powerhouse. Both of these men give Maniwa like a character. This is a character who's very calm and collected at first, but and he also has a lot of confidence. 
But once he gets agitated, he gets really desperate. And there's a there's a moment again as everyone is as Maniwa cracks, like everybody in this show cracks at some point. Boy, does he go off the deep end. Maniwa sounds like a man just constantly on the edge of shattering completely. In fact, you heard his voice like very distorted. You heard Liam O'Brien's voice opening this episode. I get chills every time that that was actually at the end of episode seven. So I get chills every time I hear that performance. Like, man, that was really good. Maromi the doll gets some voice lines. Maromi the doll in Japanese is voiced by Haruko Momoi. She is a prolific actress and singer, and she's also known to enjoy cosplaying as some of the characters that she voices. However, of course, Maromi the doll is very much a side character or like a side antagonist of this series. So I'm going to give Haruko-san some headliner energy real quick. She's voice of Ferris Nyan from Steins Gate. It's a very dumb name, but it's a great character. There is uh, a main character now, San Seto, who's the love interest from My Bride is a Mermaid. She also has a ton of musical credits for vocals as well as lyrics compositions that just far outstrip her voice acting credits. She typically sings a lot. I've seen on like Slice of Life slash comedy series. So of course, she sung for My Bride is a Mermaid. We also have Occupus Trip. She worked on the Steinsgate insert songs, and she did the ending credits theme for Hyperdimensional Neptunia. In English, Maromi the Doll is voiced by Carrie Savage, who's worked on AGR, ADR, and scripting on episodes of various shows. Uh, not really the lead ADR director, so it's more like various shows, various episodes of Shuffle, Suzuka, Orin High School Host Club, and School Rumble. She is a couple of voice credits. She's the voice of Lisana Strauss from Fairy Tale, Raka, who's the main character of Haibane Renmei, another show to really check out if you enjoy Paranoia Agement, as well as Kaya from the Funimation dub of One Piece. So let's finally get into this. Shonen Bat slash Little Slugger. In Japanese, he is voiced by Daisuke Sakaguchi, who's, <laughs> you're going to love this character name. He voices the character Jacuzzi Splot from Bakano. He's also the voice of Yohei Sunohara from Clan Ad and Shipachi Shimura from Gintama. So these are like comedy characters. Some more fun uh, non-anime roles. He voices Tatsu in Xenoblade Chronicles 2, the video game, and another dub-over voice, again, also in comedy. He is the Japanese voice for Stan Marsh from South Park, and he's also the voiceover for Freddie Friedman, who's uh, Jack Dylan Grazer. This is Shazam, both of those movies of Shazam. So he does it more for like comedy. I've listed a lot of comedy roles, but it's more of like his his voice is typically on like a higher, like a youthful register is what I'm kind of getting at with those voice actors, with those voice acting roles. Because in English, Shonen Bat is voiced by Sam Regal. So we have another critical role actor, but he also has a long career in voice acting and production as well. So he's also worked on Naruto as a voice director and a scriptwriter for the English adaptation, as well as voicing several mis- miscellaneous characters. So Sam Regal is another guy, when I hear his voice, I know him primarily as a comedy actor who voices side roles, like, you know, the best buddy of the protagonist. But he demonstrates that he can also get, he can be very sinister as uh, Shonen Bat. A couple of other characters, he's been Miki from Redline. He was the this character named Purio from Zatch Bell. But of all the things coming back recently, like I've seen a lot of people talking about Zatch Bell recently. So that's either a nostalgia wave coming in or there must be an anniversary. Is there a reboot project that I just didn't know about? I kind of I'm kind of curious. But anyways, we have another character, Mephisto Feles, who is the schoolmaster of Blue Exorcist. So Shonen Bat is acting as sort of the main antagonist or like the main focal point 
of the show. But really, as far as the rest of the characters, like this is another this is another case of a large cast of several people. But aside from these four characters and Moromi, they only get each each character only gets maybe one, maybe half an episode before fading into the background. So instead of going through literally a dozen people, I kind of wanted to highlight these four, and then I'm going to give a little more shout outs in a, in a second here. Uh, because with all of these side stories, you have to stay grounded at some point. So the detectives, Maniwa and Ikari, pretty much ground the show as best as can be accomplished for a show like Paranoia Agent. We spend the most time basically with these two men as they uncover the case. But of course, you'll be surprised at who actually uncovers the truth behind the little slugger phenomenon. I still want to highlight some standout characters, some side roles. Uh, we have Kotono Mitsuishi as Harumi Chono and Maria in Japanese. This character, These characters are also voiced by Erika Schaefer. And one of the most punchable characters in this show, we have Sarata from episode 10. This episode 10 is the one about, is an episode all about this anime production that goes just about as horribly wrong as it can. So in Japanese, Sarata is voiced by Hiroyuki Yoshino and Johnny Breen in English. So again, Saru is the English word for monkey, so he's kind of monkey-faced, and both actors give him this monkeyish hooting laugh for when he finally goes insane. Because again, everyone to some degree goes insane in this show. Followed by one of the most enigmatic characters in this show. This is the old man named, otherwise known as Erosian. He's also known as the Old Master, who acts like a kind of a sage of sorts during the Dragon Quest parody delusion bit. He's voiced by Ryuichi Saikichi in Japanese, and a voice that I recognized instantly because this is William Frederick Knight in voicing English. He also voices uh, Daisuke Aramaki from Ghost in the Shell Standalone Complex. That's a really recognizable voice to me. Every single time he opens his mouth, I go, oh, that's William Frederick Knight. So I wanted to shout out those side characters real quick. But once again, if there's a particular vocal performance that stands out to you, well, here's a reason to pay attention to the ending credits of each episode, because they typically list the voice actors first. You can check them out on IMDb or the Anime News Network Encyclopedia. Some of these guys are even Wikipedia famous, so you can check them out there as well. And that will pretty much take us into the release and reception for Paranoia Agent. So the series, Paranoia Agent, premiered on Japan's WowWow Satellite Broadcasting Network. Yes, that's actually its name, as well as the name of the company who owns it. So this ran from February 3rd to May 18th, 2004. So as far as the American release, we have Geneon acquired Paranoia Agent first. They released the show across four DVD sets starting from October 2004 to May 2005, and even released a UMD version, that's a universal media disc that you think of like for the PlayStation Portable. So they released a UMD for the first volume of, or like the first DVD of Paranoia Agent on October, in, in October 2005. The English dub of Paranoia Agent was done by the company New Generation Pictures, who've been around since about 1992. They've done dubbing on a lot of video game projects like Street Fighters 4 through 6, the Rune Factory games, a couple of Marvel pinball games and just Marvel games in particular. Uh, anime projects, they've been involved with Eureka 7, Helsing and Helsing Ultimate, Bayonetta Bloody Fate. Again, you can check them out pretty easily. The English, So the English broadcast of Paranoia Agent began on the Cartoon Network's Adult Swim block at the end of May 2005, and there was another encore airing that began in 2006. And there, I even found a short article from December of 2009 where he had a horror film director, Takashi Shimizu, uh, best known for the Grudge franchise. 
He announced that he planned to produce a live-action film for Paranoia Agent. However, nothing further after that, and uh, since then, of course, the plans fell through. Also, when Geneon went out of business in the late 2000s, you know, Paranoia Agent was not picked up by any company until February 3rd, 2020, when Funimation announced that it had licensed the series for its streaming platform. And in April of that same year, Adult Swim announced that they would be rebroadcasting the English dub of Paranoia Agent for the first time in over a decade on the Toonami block. This was a big deal. I mean, both companies were rolling out the red carpet for Paranoia Agent in their marketing. A modern classic by Satoshi Kon, they said. And I also remember seeing several posts just around the internet of both celebration and jubilation and then equal parts other people going, what the hell is a paranoia agent? It was, uh, it was honestly a weird and delightful time to experience, that's for, that's for sure. I wasn't quite able to catch the full broadcast on TV, but I did tune in for the premiere of the first episode. But by this point, you know, this entire series had been on YouTube for over a decade I'd gotten into, I started to get into, I was still kind of a, a latecomer into Satoshi Kon's catalog, but this is about 20, late 2017 or about 2018 when I, uh, my first movie was Millennium Actress. And so, of course, I'd obviously seen Paranoia Agent on YouTube prior to the 2020 re-release, but it was still nice to see a, the English dub and on the big screen and in an actual like good quality instead of, you know, 360p. Of course, the Blu-rays for Paranoia Agent released in December of 2020. I think it was like December 15th. I bought my set a few weeks later, and it looks really good. These Blu-rays are very nice. And as far as critical reception to Paranoia Agent, this show overall did pretty well in reviews. Satoshi Kon, in general, just tends to do pretty well with critics, like no matter how esoteric some of his movies may seem or just are presented, there's usually a strong and clear message attached to them. With Paranoia Agent, however, Cone doesn't represent an argument or a solution so much as a warning about the dangers of modern society's obsession with material goods and escapism. So that's what a lot of reviewers over here basically latched onto. And if you want to check out this show for yourself, Paranoia Agent is, of course, still available on Funimation's website. You can also find it on Crunchyroll. So, my dear listeners, before we move into the final act, of course, there is one last stop. This is my little segment where I briefly highlight an anime similar to the show that I'm covering for the 15 seconds of fame. So, this show is a series animated by Triangle Staff at the turn of the millennia, and it also features a cast of characters living on the reality of edge of reality and an offer of false hopes of escaping into fantasy. Getting plugged into the fantasy is easy enough. But if you try to leave, you might find yourself entangled in the wire. What is reality? What is fantasy? What is this 15 seconds that I'm about to play? Is that a transition? No, that's a roller clip. Okay, detectives, this is your last chance to pause if you want a little more time to think about it. But as for the rest of us, three, two, one. 
This is Serial Experiments Lane, and I just ripped the uh, Anime News Network encyclopedia summary just straight off their website. So Lane Iwakura appears to be an ordinary girl with almost no experience with computers. Yet the sudden suicide of a schoolmate and a number of strange occurrences conspire to pull Lane ever deeper into the world of The Wired, where she gradually learns that nothing is what it seems to be, not even Lane herself. Serial Experiments Lane is basically a cyberpunk slash psychological horror series from about 1998. It was animated by a studio called Triangle Staff, which was a studio founded by former Madhouse staff in 1987 until its closure in 2000. It is a slow burn kind of a series and a gradual descent into madness, but also features a lot of interesting concepts and particularly avant-garde imagery that I particularly enjoy. And the storytelling also plays around with the audience perception and in a non-linear linear fashion, I find kind of similar to Paranoia Agent. It's just a different flavor. And it is, again, it is also more of a slow burn series despite the same episode account. But when the show decides to go, like it fully goes. And this is also a series that I really don't expect a lot of people to enjoy Serial Experiments Lane. But to the folks who like this show, they love this show including me. I love this show. Unfortunately, this is pretty hard to track down at the moment. It's stuck on Funimation Premium, which you can check it out there. If you don't want to try out a Funimation Premium uh, subscription, the full show has been on YouTube for a while. So thank you, detectives, for playing. Next is our final step for the episode, the review roundup. So I'm going to play a little bit more of Hirasawa-san's amazing music as we transition in. I always find that horror, much like comedy, is extremely subjective. And when I try to think about horror to animation, I run into a few additional challenges to that subjectivity. There's a initial disconnect between the audience and the characters in a horror series because, of course, these people act irrationally. And the whole kind of conceit of a horror movie is these characters you know, acting possibly in stupid ways or just in ways that inevitably lead them to the scary thing. But when you add, when you make that same character animated, it just adds an extra barrier because whereas you have something like the movies, you know, The Evil Dead, Saul, The Shining, Friday the 13th, Halloween, and one of my favorite films, Alien, you know, we obviously run into a lot of fictional situations and special effects, you know, lots of blood and all that stuff. But there is that little added squeamishness of a real human being. No matter how many buckets of blood someone is apparently made of, it's still watching those real effects of watching a, quote, real person just get eviscerated. And so when you add in animation to the mix, you know, anime horror in particular has an additional cultural barrier because horror is more of a fusion. It's a secondary or it's an add-on. It's very common to have something being really like an action series first and horror very secondary or just being thrown in as kind of like a buzzword. Even for popular shows like Soul Eater. Okay, bad example. That's 15 years old. Let's, uh, well, let's see. Uh, Tokyo Ghoul. There's one. Parasite the Maxim. Chainsaw Man. There you go. Even Jujutsu Kaisen. 
Attack on Titan even gets tossed around as being a horror series. I don't think of Attack on Titan as being a horror series, but it certainly has horrifying elements. Death Note's in this same camp. Death Note, I always see more as a psychological thriller. But indeed, it does have elements that I could say, okay, these elements of these elements of the show, I can argue for horror, but I don't think of Death Note as a horror series. Even the shows that might be, quote, the obvious choices, you know, your long-standing examples, a few that come to my mind that will kind of, again, give away my generation, you know, millennial over here. I think of Elfin Laid or Elfin Lied, Higurashi no Nakakorani, that's uh, Higurashi When They Cry, Shiki, it's a vampire series, Corpse Party, School Live or School Live, that was a recent one kind of there, or the finale of School Days. And I even mentioned a few of my summer favorites this year in my in my uh, preview or my wrap-up. These were all kind of, quote, horror-adjacent series. And really, the only one out of that three really going for scares was, I believe, Dark Gathering. We had Undead Murder Farce was more of like using classic monsters and movie tropes and settings, your werewolves and vampires, to more like flesh out its setting. Then we had over here at ZOM 100, Bucket List of the Dead. Again, just playing homage and parodying several popular movie tropes associated with zombies. But it's almost like the opposite of a horror series. And where in the heck does High School of the Dead fit into all this? It fits in the trash. And it's been a couple of minutes and I still haven't even begun to talk about paranoia agents horror yet. And so I want to open with a question then. What makes an effective horror? It's the subjectivity also goes into person to person. Because in my opinion, horror works best when playing upon and upsetting audience expectations for a particular scene or a sequence of events that's been set up. You can also apply this to how I think comedy really works. Of This is more like surprise and delighting. But the goal in both horror and comedy, in, in, in my opinion, when they work best, is when they are surprising the audience. They are unbalancing the audience. They're taking you to a place that you are unfamiliar with or a place of kind of uncomfortableness. And it's in taking his audience to an unfamiliar place is one of those skill sets that by this time, Satoshi Kon is a practically an old hand at by this point in his career. And so therefore I picked Paranoia Agent because, you know, number one, I was not going to end my first year of podcasting without talking about Satoshi Kon, damn it. Reason number two, this is the scariest anime I own, maybe next to Perfect Blue, which is also by Satoshi Kon. And even then, like number three, this to me is one of the scariest pieces of media I just own in general, one of the scariest pieces of media that I've consumed in general. Because what I find especially scary is what is the central core of Paranoia Agent. The true fear of Paranoia Agent is watching normal people not only fail to live up their expectations to their expectations, but give up entirely and therefore like give in to their darker desires. Like people just slide so far back. And it's this yearning to let go of one's own responsibilities. And Satoshi Kon interprets this into a horror piece. And it's, she showcases the darkness that just normal people are capable of. They are gradual or even sudden descent in, in, into madness. I eat this kind of horror up because I find that we all have a little bit of darkness in us. And this is a theme that can be explored in any number of ways across all kinds of media. And even scarier, we can see its consequences at play in the real world as well. Paranoia Agent in particular is what I would consider a good showcase of the variety of Satoshi Kon's storytelling techniques. Again, in this setting, he's primarily telling it as a horror, but he also has 
like even the comedy, as dark as it is at some points, it is genuinely funny. And he is, again, I, I stated this earlier, but Satoshi Kon really is not a horror director in my eyes, which is weird for me to say that on a Halloween episode. He is in that group of what I would call a humanist director. Satoshi Kon is a man very concerned with the social problems of his time. And what you will see across a lot of his works, and also in Paranoia Agent, there's one character in particular who's just makes a bunch of anime figurines, and he's like the ones making these dolls. And this dude is just a real creep. His primary, Satoshi Kon's primary target is the otaku. And this is a term basically just meaning like unhealthily obsessed fan over something. It's, it is a term most commonly associated with the anime community, but otaku applies to hobbies and interests outside of anime as well. But it's kind of been taken over as an anime term, at least over here in the West. But in particular, Satoshi Kon was concerned with reaching out to the lost generation, people who have been left behind by Japanese society at large, particularly a term, another term called the hikikomori, people who have literally shut themselves away from society. There are entire policies in the Japanese government now that are concerned with the lost generation, because these are some major issues of society that were around in Kon's time. And they're really coming to the forefront now as we have the whole population crisis and the dem- demographics and everything. Just These are some major issues of society that for many years the Japanese government was kind of trying to keep swept under the rug, especially during the after the economic collapse during the 80s. And it's this, it's this lost generation, particularly from that economic bubble collapse, that Satoshi Kon is trying to reach out to, trying to say like, all hope is not lost. You know, you are wasting, you're, you're literally wasting away by shutting yourself off. This is the danger of shutting yourself off completely from, from society. You're letting yourself not live up to your potential. And this grind of just strict business practices as well, even just now we have hikikomori who are just burnt out from modern society in general. You know, the businesses are expected, are expecting you to give it all for your company and just to keep working and working and working and just leads to high rates of burnout just across everything as well. It gets, again, there, there are people who have written entire articles or entire YouTube documentaries and TV documentaries about the lost generation, the hikikomori, the otaku. But at its core, Paranoia Agent is about people who are weighed down and cornered by various situations they feel that they have no escape from. And almost all these characters, all the characters in this show either fail or risk failing to live up to their potential. This is either, again, to their personal fault or fault or the result of unfair societal pressure. Either way, at some point, everyone in this show cracks. Even for the really unlikable characters who were just like, I can't wait for this guy to get his comeuppance. There's not really a catharsis for us, the audience, in seeing them get theirs. There's a very brief catharsis, but then you start to realize like this is just trigger this is just making the situation that this person was in. This is just making the situation worse. Them, you know, quote, getting theirs, it's just making them into worse people. And this is what I think the brilliance of Paranoia Agent is, because this is very unconventionally scary. There's hardly any gore and practically zero like over the top, like Halloween-esque death scenes. There's, at the most, you'll have, you know, Little Slugger, the ominous approach of roller skates, and the last thing a character sees is the back coming down, you know, a sudden swish and cut to black. You basically have a cast of characters who, in some way, can't deal with their status in society, whether that be fitting in amongst their peers, 
Uh, also, pressures mounting at work. There's even an episode about cramming for exams as a side story, only for the knowledge to literally pour out of people like black sludge composed of letters and numbers and equations. So this guy talking about the brutal cycle of the exam culture in Japan and just the kind of study, study, study and just the stress and importance. Like if you fail an exam, you have to take a very strict exam to get into certain colleges. And if you fail that, ex- that if you fail that college exam, you have to wait a year basically in the lurch. And there's an entire industry of prep schools that are all about cramming the knowledge in for these really tough exams. That's just to get into the college. It's a very ironic and kind of very darkly humorous thing about cramming for exams only for the knowledge to literally spill out of your mouth, your eyes, your ears. It's like just blah. And watching people go through this amount of grief and suffering is really the also plays upon what I like to call the horror of empathy. That same feeling of at some level of I've been there. Or I've been in that person's shoes. And with the added frustrations of only watching them make the worst possible decision every time. You know, that classic horror movie trope. What are you doing? Don't go behind the wall of chainsaws. He's going to get you. And the disjointed nature of the plot and of the characters only heightens the tension and terror that these people are feeling. There's a real breaking down of walls here. The characters are drawn and react so realistically that even the most outlandish animations feel grounded in a way that other horror anime series struggle to convey and try and bridge that gap with, oh, we're just going to watch this person die a violent death. Like, no, no one's really dying in this show. It's just people are losing themselves. They're losing their minds. One particular chilling episode is episode four. It's called A Man's Path. This is one of those of there's no real catharsis in watching this guy's downfall. We have our crooked police officer, a character named Masami Hirokawa, and he's been taking bribes from the mob, finally getting his due, And any catharsis in watching this bastard get his due is like quickly erased by how fast he falls into actually serious crime. And not only that, like he starts to internalize his own actions. And so at the end of the episode, he's gone so far that he's been assaulting people and breaking into houses and getting into like really serious stuff. And he has just lost all hope. And he's just sitting in the in the street crying out, just somebody, anybody stop me, please For the love of God, stop me. Please, somebody stop me. And then comes the sound of inline skates. And even then, as we progress deeper into the series, we have the added, just, what what is it? Irregularity? Irrationality? Uh, Well, either way, as we progress deeper into the series, we have the meme culture of Maromi and Little Slugger simultaneously begin to feed off of each other. Again, as very early in the episode, I said, Maromi, this little puppy dog, is basically Hello Kitty status, while Little Slugger is more of the backstreets urban legend like on the internet floating around. He's the Slender Man. And the Japanese society in Paranoia Agent just can't seem to let either icon run their course. They are just obsessed with both of these icons. And in fact, as these as they get more popular, the society's interest in Maromi turns into outright mania. And the stories and rumors about Little Slugger just become more and more outlandish. And it's here where we start to get halfway at the halfway point, Paranoia Agent really starts to bear its fangs. And it's another reason I enjoy this series is because Paranoia Agent 
for a time, also serves as a pretty good mystery series for the opening episodes. And even through the later bit, all the clues are present in the show from episode one. And if you're familiar with how Khan's, like his general operating procedure, you'll definitely pick up on a few hints. But at the same time, if it's your first time watching Paranoia Agent, or even if it's your first time watching it again, don't worry too much about missing out on a bunch of cryptic hidden details at the expense of your viewing experience. The answers will come soon enough. It's not a complicated mystery. He's not putting things like randomly in the background. Like Satoshi Khan, when he wants you to see something, he makes sure that you see something. And like all good mysteries, even the reveal of the quote culprit is only the beginning. Of course, you have the obvious episode where everything is revealed and now we have to really deal with the situation. But even then, it's not like the typical, oh, now we've revealed the curtain, now we've revealed the monster, now there's an obvious solution to take down the monster, a la something like The Ring. And I think that's just really what I enjoy about Paranoia Agent. As soon as you get comfortable with one aspect of the show, or as soon as you think, oh, this is what the show is about, Satoshi Khan goes, nope, pulls the rug out from under you. He constantly does this, and it's one of the things that I've always enjoyed about not only, again, not only Paranoia Agent, but how he does his movies in general. I have not really seen a director do really what Satoshi Khan was able to to pull off. I think maybe Masaki Yuasa gets something close, but as far as he tends to go more like the surrealist route. And what Satoshi Khan did was he went more of the, he, he also put in a little bit of absurdist and uh, surrealism in his works, but this was a lot more of, he had grounded characters experiencing hallucinations as reality. And as audience members, we would experience these hallucinations as hallucinations as reality as well. And that's an aspect that even Masaki Yuasa, he kind of is over here doing his own thing. And so if there's a director that I'm not thinking of in anime or there's someone that I've forgotten, definitely go, go down in the comments and let me know, especially like who are your favorite uh, anime directors for horror series. So as we close the book on another episode of the Treehouse Anime Club, I would like to ask you this, dear listener. How are we supposed to deal with a seemingly inescapable responsibility? And what is the correct response to being emotionally driven into a corner? You could follow like the Maromi doll character who reminds you to take a rest, take a break, take a respite from your work for just a little while and take that time to mentally recharge. That's all well and good, but what about when there's probably not an option? You know, what's then? And so if you want a distillation of why I find Paranoia Agent so scary, it can probably be summed up fittingly into one Japanese word or one Japanese phrase. This is called ganbaru. This means to work hard and endure through tough times. And that's all well and good, but in modern times, it's been kind of taken over as something like, suck it up, buttercup, get back to work. Humans need a break and reflection time. You know, we aren't machines, and we need that time to step away and relax. We must also be careful not to fall into escapism, because that can just lead to being trapped in a completely different cycle, and at that point, you're only delaying the inevitable. So Paranoia Agent doesn't so much offer a solution to these questions or these problems as it does offer a warning. And even then, at the same time, your situation is never hopeless. It's an interesting paradox situation that we find ourselves in. So in a way, I'm kind of hearkening back to my episode three on Soul Eater, where I concluded with, if you're feeling trapped, then don't hesitate to reach out to someone for help. And if you're in a position to help someone, reach reach out to them and pull them back to their feet. Some days can certainly feel overwhelming and inescapable. 
whether at work, at school, or just general daily life. And it's easy to want to get away from it all. But if you try to push all this away or bottle up your problems, that will only make your problems worse. That darkness will just only grow darker within you. We create our own monsters, but we also is just as easily create our own life. And so I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Treehouse Anime Club, and I would like to wish everyone an especially happy Halloween. So please tell me what you thought of the episode, and if you have watched Paranoia Agent and, or anything by Satoshi Kon, we do have a comment section in the Spotify episode's description. So tell me about your favorite horror series, anime or otherwise, as well as your favorite bits about Halloween. You can follow along the show on Instagram, the Treehouse Anime Pod, so stay up to date, plus a couple extra goodies. And as a quick reminder, our next episode is Chobits, also by Studio Madhouse, and directed by Morio Osaka. This is our lucky number 13 episode, and this was randomly selected, Chobits was randomly selected by uh, Wheel of Fate, containing shows submitted by the Treehouse Club members. So look forward to that episode on November 8th at 3 p.m. Central. I hope to see you there. Stay safe. Happy Halloween, and watch more cartoons. <laughs>